Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the creator of Create Tailwind, and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back, Breakaway Wealth. I'm Jim Oliver, your host. And with me today, I've got a really special guest that I have a lot of respect for. Not that I don't have respect for all of my guests, but but I've got uh, Bob Murphy with us today. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me, Jim. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to join us. I think that you guys are going to want to listen very closely today because, you know, Bob is uh, is a great economist. He's got a PhD from NYU and in, uh, in economics, and he's he's Austrian in his in his uh, economic beliefs. He's also written a few books on infinite banking, and he's uh, he's just he's he's done a great job. Bob, tell. Tell us a little bit about yourself and um, and your background and uh, your family life. Just kind of get a feel for you. Sure. I'm uh, married. I live in uh, central Massachusetts. Uh, we, I have two sons and a stepdaughter. We've got, um, let's see, I, in terms of my professional background, relevance for this conversation, uh, as you say, I, I went originally into academia. I taught economics at Hillsdale College for three years. Then I went into the financial sector. I worked for Arthur Laffer of Laffer Curve fame um, in Nashville, Tennessee for a bit. And I'm a senior fellow with the Mises Institute, which is uh, the home of Austrian economics that people may have heard of. And I imagine, Jim, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Yep. And so right now it's, and I'm also very heavily involved. I'm, I'm on the board of directors of what's called the Nelson Nash Institute, which of course is uh, connected to IBC. And so a lot of what I do right now is trying to just teach the public about how economics, sound economics works, and then also IBC. You know, in that, and that's, uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed when I first started looking at infinite banking. And I read uh, a book that you wrote with Carlos Laura, How Privatized Banking Really Works, and that you kind of piqued my interest to tie the two together, um, you know, the economics and infinite banking. And, um, and it, you know, just really brought it together because I obviously don't have the background that you have in economics. And, and it, it really created the solid base for me when I started uh, discovering and exploring infinite banking. So uh, just, I, I want to guess, I guess we should just start with the real basics for people out there, Bob, that don't understand economics or, or kind of the uh, schools of economics. Talk, to, talk about maybe that real quick and then Austrian economics in a little bit more detail. Sure. So uh, people, I'm sure your listeners may realize that for various reasons in the social sciences, there tend to be like schools, whereas like in in the harder sciences, like physics or chemistry, I mean, there, there could be controversies and different people, you know, could line up on certain issues, but usually there it's things that they can't really test, you know, like uh, string theory or something physicists might be for or against it, but that's because they can't really test it and settle the matter one way or the other. Whereas in the social sciences, things are so complicated and for historical events, you know, experts in the field can be arguing forever about what caused what, that these schools arise or persist, I should say, I suppose. And so in economics, um, some schools are, there's the Keynesian school named after John Maynard Keynes, and that's pretty dominant right now, just viewing recessions, for example, as being due to not, not enough demand or aggregate demand. So 
if you're a Keynesian and there's a recession, you'd say, oh, we need the Fed to cut interest rates to stimulate spending. And if that doesn't do the trick, then the government needs to come in and spend more. You've also got the Chicago School, uh, you know, associated with Milton Friedman, people like that. It tends to be very free market. Um, but even the Chicago School thinks that like the Great Depression, for example, was caused by the Fed not inflating enough. And then you've got the Austrian School, of which I'm a member, and the, the name there just comes from the fact that the, the founders were obviously from Austria. That's where it comes from. It's not, it's not about the economics of the country of Austria. And the Austrian School, it's very free market as well in terms of its policy positions, but I, I, to me, it's more consistent and more comprehensive than even the Chicago School, because in the Austrian approach, um, they think the business cycle is caused by the government and, and uh, central bank and the banking system flooding the economy with artificially cheap credit that pushes down interest rates and causes the boom-bust cycle. And so to me, the Austrians um, are, are a very important school for us to be talking about today because if they're right, that means that all the things that the central banks around the world have been doing since the 2008 crisis, for example, are just setting us up for another big crash. So I, I'm, certain, I'm happy to talk more about the Austrians if, you, if you'd like and, and how they're different from the other schools. But to me, the reason I think just, you know, normal people need to know about this is even compared to the relatively free market Chicago school, the Austrians think that no, the reason we have recessions, it's not because the Fed doesn't inflate enough, it's because the Fed's been inflating too much. It's, it creates these unsustainable booms. So, so talk about that, because I think a lot of people maybe talk about quantitative easing and, um, you know, um, and, you know, kind of explain that and then put the, put the scale of it in perspective. Okay, sure. So, you know, quantitative easing, I'm sure your listeners, they know it, oh, it has to do with the, the purchase, the big, huge purchases that the Fed started making after the 2008 crisis. But in case they never thought about or had to explain to them, you know, what, what does that term mean? Why do they call it quantitative easing? Um, I think part of what they, where that comes from is before 2008, if, you're, if your listeners can think back and remember this, when the Fed would announce a policy decision, they didn't say anything about how much assets they were buying. That was all in the background. They would just say the Fed today decided to cut interest rates 50 basis points or the Fed decided to hold steady and keep interest rates constant. So it was all before 2008, the Fed's policy decisions were always couched in terms of what are they doing with interest rates? And if the Fed wanted to ease or put its foot on the gas or whatever metaphor you want to use, they would cut interest rates. And if it was going the other way, oh, oh price, in, price inflationary pressures are too high. So the Fed's raised interest rate. You know, they would step on the, on the brakes by raising interest rates. But what happened after the 2008 crisis is the Fed pushed interest rates all the way to zero, or at least short-term interest rates, and still the economy was clearly in bad shape. And so in the standard Keynesian paradigm, you know, what are you supposed to do at that point? You know, it, pushing down interest rates, they went as low as they could go, at least using conventional measures, and still that wasn't doing the trick. And so that's why they switched the language to start now telling people, this is how much the Fed's going to buy in assets. And so the first few rounds of the QE1 and QE2 were uh, explained to Wall Street in terms of how, how, much of, you know, how many assets, like the total buy that was going to be implemented over time. And then with QE3, your listeners may recall, Jim, the, the WAGs just called the QE infinity because there they, they switched. They said, geez, we did those first two rounds of asset purchases. And by yeah. the way, even back then, that was unprecedented. So to give you some, some numbers here, 
going into the crisis in the in uh, September of 2008, the Fed's balance sheet was like around 100 or 850 billion, something like that, and then it more than doubled just in a few months. Okay, and wow. and and that. And then, of course, the economy, if you think about it, in the early 2009, Obama's just getting sworn in at that point. The economy was still awful and was going to get much worse. So that didn't do the trick. Um, then QE2, they did another massive purchase, didn't seem to work. And so finally, they said, you know what? The problem with QE1 and QE2 is once we announce the number, Wall Street just prices that in, and then that's it. It's just a boom, a one-shot thing. So with so-called QE3 or QE infinity, they said, we're just going to keep doing these asset purchases, and I think it topped out at 85 billion a month in the mix of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, and we're just going to keep doing it until it works. So that that's why it was it was, it was an open-ended, in other words. So they weren't giving a fixed dollar amount; they were just telling investors the Fed's going to keep doing this until conditions improve. Um, so, so what? I mean, you know, obviously nobody knows for sure, but we should be able to have some prediction of what's the end result of this. Obviously we are, we are going to, we're going to continue to be in this boom bust cycle. And I would, I would assume that the bust that's coming is going to be a big one. I mean, how, I mean, it sooner or later, there has to be hyperinflation or no. I mean, Sure. Let me just say one last thing yeah. because I yeah, I'm sorry. You, yeah. you, you, you had asked about just to make sure so we don't lose this thread that what, so what they did back then was unprecedented and guys like me were freaking out. And I do want yeah. to talk about, you know, the inflation, issue. but just so people realize since the pandemic, uh, you know, crisis hit in the United States, they have done what they did since then has even dwarfed what they did back following 2008. So specifically, the Fed's balance sheet went from about a little over $4 trillion, uh, in early 2020 to now it's more than $7 trillion, just a wow. few months later. Okay, And so that's and – and just for people who have, don't know these mechanics, for the Fed to go buy $3 trillion worth of assets just in a few months, it's not – you say, well, where do they get the money from? Well, they just create it electronically, right? So the, the Fed can't bounce a check legally. So right. the Fed, when it buys assets – in the act of purchasing them, it credits the bank account of the recipient. And then those checks always clear because the Fed is the one that's in charge of telling everybody how much they have in their checking account balances, as it were. Right. So I'm, I'm dumbing it down a little bit, but th that's the essence of it. And so, so the, you know, you raise a great question, of course, that's what people are worried about. So let me just, in the interest of humility, and I don't want people to, to misunderstand I was very worried in 2009, 2010, that there was going to be significant price inflation at the consumer level. Like I thought, you know, gasoline was going to be more expensive and you go in the store and bread was going to be a lot more expensive. And that didn't happen nearly. So it did happen somewhat. And there's tricks the grocery stores, for example, have been using to hide it. So, I mean, yeah. it's, you can't find an employee anymore. You're bagging your own groceries, little things like the cereal and toilet paper and stuff that they're they're thinner now, right? Because cardboard prices went up. So just the actual box of Cheerios, the box itself is a lot thinner now than it used to be. So there's lots of things they were doing because people were out of work and uh, producer prices were going up. So that's what you know retailers had to do. But it certainly wasn't as you know it wasn't like the late '70s in terms of just rapid price inflation. Um, so I, I think there's some reasons, and certainly we can talk about this but my the quick thing i think that i would say jim is they have the fed's been pumping a lot of money in let's say at the top end and 
banks, you know, major financial institutions have been absorbing that stuff, you know, because right now people are very scared and they're willing to hold safe assets and what's safer than, you know, the U.S. dollar so long as prices don't start exploding upwards. And, uh, but banks aren't lending on, on, the, on the basis of that, right? So that's one of the, the things that the chains that, that hasn't gone through yet is normally in normal times when the Fed buys assets and creates reserves, that gives commercial banks the ability to go lend on top of those reserves. So the banks, the commercial banks are not have the option of doing that, but because the situation looks so bad and because they got burned so badly during the housing boom bust, they were more skittish. And so they haven't been lending as much on top of that. So that's part of the explanation. The other thing too is I think one way of looking at it is there was significant price inflation relative to the counterfactual of what otherwise would have happened. So in other words, people were so panicked, the global crisis that set in in 2008, there would have been massive price falls had the Fed not come and just printed all that money, sort of sending it into a black hole. Um, right. So that's right. the same thing with this time around. In March and April, if the central banks around the world hadn't done anything, I think you would have seen significant price crashes. But by the way, and, and so a lot of people are like, yeah, so good. I'm glad that the central banks did that. But I would say it's the other way around that it, it used to be like on the gold standard in particular, when central banks printed a bunch of money, prices would go up, but then they'd be worried about their gold reserves. So they'd stop and then prices would come down. So in the long run, you had price stability, whereas now we've lost that. And so everyone just knows, oh yeah, the dollar keeps getting weaker over time. And so, you know, the, the other pattern here too is notice these crises keep getting worse. Right. The, the original one, the reason we have the house, had the housing bubble was there was the dot-com crash, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And Greenspan, who was the Fed chair at the time, did the same Keynesian playbook, flood the market with cheap credit, lower interest rates. And people were calling him the maestro in the early 2000s because, oh, wow, we had a recession, but home prices keep rising. And in retrospect, you know what? The fact that he goosed home prices, maybe that wasn't such a good idea because look what happened, you know, when the housing bubble burst. So they keep, this is maybe one way of putting it, the central banks keep taking each crisis and these bubbles and replacing them with an even bigger bubble to try to get us out of that. And so you say, well, what's the end game there? Yeah, so they can keep doing it. And the people who are warning that this is a bad idea, they might look like, oh, you guys are just, you know, paranoid. Don't worry about it. I used to things were going to be bad. And look at the stock market's booming, but it keeps booming and then crashing harder and harder. And at some point, I think, you know, the end game is people are going to get out of the dollar. So I'm not saying it's going to happen next Tuesday, yeah. but I'm saying it, it – you're not making the country wealthier by printing dollars or by creating dollar d- deposits electronically. That doesn't create more tractors or real estate or, you know, computer programmers or brain surgeons. It's just creating more dollars. So that doesn't really make us wealthier. And so that can't, you know, just, just common sense, that can't be the solution. If we have a bad economy, just printing money isn't the answer, but it can give the illusion of helping and it sort of greases the wheels and then just sets us up for a bigger fall. So an analogy people use, it's like if, if someone's been you know, on, a, on a drinking binge and then you're going to have a hangover, well, you can just drink more to postpone it. But right. that's not a long-term solution. At some point, you've got to stop and just suffer the pain. And the sooner you do it, the, worse, you know, the, the, the less painful it's going to be. Right, right. Now, that makes sense. You know, often people look at the, uh, the stock prices as a reflection of the – of the economy, but that's not really true. And, you know, 
you know, you, you just talking about the Fed, I think that there's so many people out there in the audience that don't understand the Fed. I think you just blew some people's minds with some with a really, like you said, kind of, uh, you know, very simple uh, explanation of what they're doing, because I'm not sure that I, I know most Americans don't understand that that's happening. But Bob, at some, um, you know, on the on doesn't technology provide efficiency uh, that hides some of these Fed actions. And, and to that point, the technology should be helping us achieve deflation, but the Fed is gobbling it up, up the gains, right? Right. So I'm glad you brought that up. So I think that's another thing to, to try to explain why is it that prices didn't go up more, you know, from 2009 to 2013, let's say, um, given that the Fed was pumping in so much money, you know, at the top of the pyramid, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and, I, and, and I think you're right. There, there were a lot of innovations that happened, uh, like, like the fracking boom, for example. I mean, you know, U.S. output of crude oil, uh, you know, I think more than doubled over a, sh- a fairly short time period. Stuff like, you know, it used to be Americans were, grew, I think you and I grew up, Jim, you know, being lectured to about America needs to wean itself from foreign oil. Yeah. Now, you know, we're like the world's pro- leading producer, things like this. So stuff like that, like gasoline, it's true. It didn't go up to $10 a gallon, but had it not, had we had a normal economy with all the innovations and in fracking, you know, gasoline might've been a dollar a gallon. Right. And so, so it's, the, there's things like that going on, you know, stuff with Uber and uh, just all the ways that the internet is now being used to help facilitate, uh, you know, in terms of employees moving around and being able to do job searches much more effectively now that, yeah, a lot of stuff had, we had a normal framework you would have seen all these innovations and in productivity uh, rising very rapidly, I think. And it would have been, you know, wow, a golden age, just like the computer revolution. Like this would have been, you know, the, I don't know if it, the internet revolution or the information revolution, I don't know what they would have called it, but yeah, a lot of that I think has been uh, literally papered over. So, so, you know, you said something about, you know, the, uh, the, the, maybe the failure of the dollar and, you know, that just, uh, I, I don't want to really dive too deep into cryptocurrency, but do you think cryptocurrency is a, um, is a potential answer to that problem, to that, to that, maybe that eventual certainty? Uh so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a fan of of crypto. I I own a lot of Bitcoin. I've I've written a a study guide. People want to go to understandingbitcoin.us uh, with a co-author. We did like a you know a sort of intro. How does how does Bitcoin work? Sort of thing. So yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. by I think it's an, an amazing idea. Just you know, accomplishment of the human mind. Just to, how that works and everything. Yeah. Um. But I mean, I'm also still a big fan of gold and silver. So yeah. I think it'll probably be a combination to answer your question. There's, there's yeah. scenarios, there's pros and cons. Like if you're in some South American country and they have martial law and you're just trying to get out, if you can just memorize, you know, your Bitcoin key, uh, pass key or what, whatnot, they, they can't find that on you. Whereas, you know, if you have a, a bunch of gold and coin or gold and silver coins on you, they can seize those. So that's, you know, one scenario you can imagine. But, you know, in other situations, if things are so bad that even the internet's down, and right. you know, you're, you're in a Mad Max world and, you know, you're going to have your bottle of water and ammunition and you got some gold and silver coins that might be pretty good. <laughs> so, right. you know, it, it depends what scenario you're trying to protect yourself against for regular investors. Um, you know, it's even with this, this last, uh, so it's been bounced around, but when there's a major crisis 
sometimes you'll see even Bitcoin go down and, and it's fans tell me it's because of, you know, it's very liquid. They're saying, no, that's, that's, a, that's a virtue. It's showing when people need to liquidate and raise funds, they, they, they you know, turn to Bitcoin. So it, again, it's, it's hard to say, but, but yes, certainly as glo- global fiat currencies issued by political institutions fail, I think you're going to see, you know, regular people turning more back towards the market's money, things like commodities like gold and silver, but also, yeah, the new, in the new age, things like Bitcoin and other crypto. Yeah. You know, uh, somebody the other day uh, said it this way is that gold and silver is God's money and cryptocurrency is the people's money. I kind of like the way they, they put that. that's interesting so um all right so you talked a little bit about wall street we talk a lot about wall street in this show and just that our goal you know it used to be you know we were taught when we started our careers um i mean i'm i'm at least 10 years older than you but but we were taught that you know you save for retirement and we were shown things like uh time value of money and the why start sooner and compounding and dollar cost averaging and modern portfolio theory and and all of these different things and you know but but over those say you know 30 40 years there's been you know the invent of the 401k and you know so all of this money flooded into the market, which created some, uh, you know, some technology boom. And then, you know, so it's just, but, but because of the cycle that we were in, in economics, you know, to me now that's not the goal is the goal is that we have to, we have to secede from the banking system and we got to secede from wall street to really have cash flowing assets, not instruments. And so, you know, we kind of make that, that pivot or that shift to um, talking about how to really create, um, you know, your own banking system and maybe talk about how you um, were introduced to that. By the way, you, what, what, well, the reason I was stuttering there is I, I was thinking of a quote from um, obviously a mentor of yours and a, and a mentor of mine, R. Nelson Nash. And Nelson would always say, um, if you know what's happening, you'll know what to do. So you kind of talked about what's happening. And, you know, when I think about infinite banking, you know, just talk about maybe, uh, you know, your experience and like how you got introduced to that and, you uh, um, and from an economic standpoint, why you thought it worked in the beginning or didn't think it worked in the beginning. I think I, I, that was a really long question. So hopefully that came through. <laughs> <laughs> sure thing. So uh, I, I had been living in Nashville and I was, do, I was doing a lot of work for the Mises Institute. And so this was 2008, 2009 time period that I'm talking about. And so, you know, with the crisis and then with the, what the Fed was doing, we were going around given presentations to the public warning them about look at you know in our in our view if that the austrians are right about this stuff it was the fed that caused the housing bubble and so now what bernanke's doing is just going to set us up for an even bigger crash down the road and and then i i met this guy carlos lara and you've alluded to him earlier jim he, yeah. he ended up being my co-author on, on a book or at this point two books but um so it, it, and it, how we met was just he also lived in Nashville and he had been using a study guide I wrote for an economics textbook. And he 
invited me over and um you know we got to know each other and he seemed like a sharp guy and you know we were both fans of the austrian school and you know we were very concerned about what the federal reserve was doing and you know the direction that you know the u.s political scene was going and then at some point he hands me this book called becoming your own banker by nelson nash so hey you know i uh, this really struck me what tell me what you think about it and the first time I read it, I thought, oh, this guy sounds great. This Nelson Ash, he sounds like a great guy. You know, somebody you'd want to have a beer with, you know, a lot of worldly wisdom. You know, he, he's nobody's fool. He understands people and how they can deceive you. And they, but I thought he doesn't quite understand some nuances in financial markets. You know, I thought that there were like six things that were basic mistakes in his book. And so I didn't really take it too seriously. But because Carlos was such a big fan of the guy, I didn't want to hurt his feelings and just blow this Nelson Ash guy off. So I gave it a chance, you know, I, I would read more about it. And it turned out that a lot of my confusion originally or my skepticism came from the fact that I didn't understand how whole life insurance worked. I just understood term insurance. And so a lot of Nelson's book was like a black box to me that he was just showing numbers in these tables and I didn't know where they were coming from. So I didn't really get what was going on. And the more I learned, I realized I had had misconceptions on my earlier reading. And I said, oh, you know what? I used to think there were six major flaws of this book. Turns out there's only five. I understood now what he means of that one passage. And then it just kept happening. I said, you know what? Okay, now I get what he meant here on page 82. So there's really four things wrong with this book still. And then it just got whittled away. And finally, when the, my last misconception was eroded, my my thought was, wow, this is a great book. How come everyone's not doing this, these idiots? You know? so, <laughs> so it was that kind of a process. And, um, and, then, and then Carlos told me that he said, look, you and the Austrians are going around warning people that we have to go back to, you know, private money and banking that with the government getting involved, they're ruining it just like the government ruins everything it gets involved in. So why would you want to have a central bank that's, you know, that's going to ruin the money and that's going to, and far from promoting stability, having the government involved in money and banking is going to exacerbate the business cycle, which just look at history, folks. The Fed was formed in late 1913. Yeah. When did the Great Depression happen? The Great Depression happened, you know, the stock market crash is 29, the Great Depression is the 30s. So even in terms of the standard timeline, all of the worst economic crises in U.S. history happened on the Fed's watch. So if the Fed was ostensibly formed to smooth out the wildcat, you know, free market boom-bust cycle, it obviously failed, even on its own terms. Just look at, you know, prima facie history. So, and then what Carlos showed me was, he said, look at what the Austrians, they're like putting their finger, they're diagnosing the problem, but Nelson Nash has the solution. The more people who do IBC, which is the infinite banking concept, the name Nelson gave to how do you use a whole life insurance policy to, you know, quote, set up your own bank, you know, in a metaphorical sense, um, in terms of cash flow management assets. Yeah. That he was saying the more people who do that, then the banking system can't cause the business cycle the way the Austrians think it happens. Okay. So the, the idea being, if you understand how the Austrians think that the Fed and the banking system inject cheap credit that's really not backed by genuine savings into the system that pushes down interest rates to false levels that stimulates these, you know, malinvestments and these unsustainable boom periods. Well, the more people in your society who are doing IBC and they don't rely on Wall Street, they don't rely on conventional banks when they make their major purchases, they're like seceding to use the word you used a minute ago, Jim. And so they're stepping out. So they're not contributing the problem. So the overall boom bust cycle gets mitigated the more people who do that. So when Carlos put it that way, I was like, oh yeah, we don't have to, because the problem with the Austrians was they were, you know, I think they're right. But the way they were looking at it is, hey, the only way we're going to 
fix this is if, you know, you go vote for Ron Paul or you go educate all your neighbors about how the Fed works. And eventually, if we get enough people behind us, maybe they'll pass legislation. And that just seemed, you know, too far. Like there's so much, you know, rich, powerful people benefiting from this printing press at their disposal. You're really going to rally the masses by handing out pamphlets on central banking. And that just seemed crazy. Right. Whereas anybody can start doing IBC next week. Yeah. So you can, you can, your household can stop contributing to the problem or your business. And so that's, you know, that's really what, Oh, okay. So that's what we started doing. And then things just went from there. You know, I met Nelson, um, his son-in-law, David Stearns, and and then the four of us formed the Nelson Nash Institute. So, you know, you you bring up uh, anytime anybody talks about Nelson, Bob, I always have fond memories of things that Nelson had said to me. And I can imagine those conversations with you in between your readings of the book. And, you know, when you asked Nelson a question or if you brought something up, he would never give, well, not maybe not never, but he rarely gave you a direct answer. I remember I asked him a question and he said, he said, Jim, what do you know about the 1921 Tulsa race riot? <laughs> and I said, maybe you didn't hear my question. Cause it didn't well, have yeah. anything to do with race. It didn't have anything to do with that at all. Like I, well, I, I guess nothing, Nelson. What do you, what, what do you mean? And he said, I think you should do some reading on that. And I said, <laughs> Okay. And I got off the phone kind of frustrated. Like you didn't answer my question. You didn't even give me an idea. And Mm -hmm. so it was probably a day later. I I started reading about it and, and how the African-Americans in Tulsa seceded from wall street. You know, they had their own wall street, their own banks. They, they seceded from the system basically. And, and they Mm -hmm. were slaughtered for it. And, you know, you think about that right now in this world of, of, of up, uproar and and social um social unrest you know that's a lesson that maybe wasn't learned that i'm not saying that i mean i'm saying that that's the answer is is if the system is stacked against you then then you have to secede from it if you want to be free right and i'm not talking about slavery from a from from an um, an african american perspective i'm talking about financial slavery but if we think about it, you know, that that's what we're trying to do in infinite banking, like you said, is not contribute to the problem. So if 10% of wealth in the United States was held in IBC instead of banks, what would it do to the Fed and the banking system, in your opinion? Make sure you tune in next week to find out. In the meantime, be sure to check our website, createtailwind.com or our YouTube channel, where we're always providing resources and adding substance. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, break away from the herd. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.